This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Is the NDP uh, interesting you of late? Uh, Remember the days of Jack Layton and then where it sort of went from there. Uh, And, of course, now the rebuilding process. Feel free. Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, As the NDP leadership candidate gave their final pitches yesterday, of course, big brouhaha in Hamilton. Members prepared for voting. Uh, where, what direction does this party go in? How do they take this party to the relevance that Jack Layton once did? Is that their mission? Is it mainstream? Or is it, more, is it more towards the core? Let's bring in Tim Harper, freelance writer and editor. Got a column in the Toronto Star, the NDP and the road back to relevance. He is with us now. Hello, Tim. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Not at all, Scott. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. I uh, hope you are, too. Uh, what happened after the Jack Layton days? Well, Jack Layton brought the uh, NDP to uh, what uh, the party felt was the brink of victory. He, uh, you, you will remember the uh, orange wave of 2011, finally the Quebec breakthrough, um, official opposition, and uh, no more talk about being the conscience of uh, Parliament. Uh, uh, they were going to win, and they went with the guy that they thought, uh, after Leighton's death, was going to uh, bring him to victory, Tom Mulcair, uh, huge pro- profile in Quebec, as you know. And uh, in October 2015, it all ran up against the Shoals, and uh, the, uh, the defeat at the hands of Justin Trudeau and the way that campaign was run really, really stung the party faithful. And uh, they have had a long period of mourning. They... Uh, they they went to the woods to try to heal, and uh, many of them haven't come out. Uh, but <laughs> we're back. They're mm. back. They believe, and I think there's a two. Uh, yesterday in Hamilton, there was a lot of talk at the uh, wrap up uh, showcase event for the four leadership candidates about winning in 2019. Uh, I think the first thing the party's got to do is get itself back on the map and get noticed. Uh, Jagmeet, uh, Jagmeet Singh certainly helping that, is he not? I mean, uh, certainly uh, gaining the spotlight from the other three. Well, Jagmeet Singh uh, is leading in uh, membership sales, fundraising, but most importantly, I think, for the party, Jagmeet Singh is leading in um, media buzz, yeah. in so much as there is any media buzz. Social, uh, social media buzz for sure. Uh, and he brings a profile to the party. Uh, I, I'm not predicting a victory necessarily for him. He's got to be seen as the front runner. There's no reliable polling. But I think that uh, Jagmeet Singh, the party owes Jagmeet Singh a great um, uh, big thank you because whether he wins or not, one can only imagine uh, what kind of coverage or lack thereof this race would be getting without Jagmeet Singh in the race. Um, the man's got some style, he's got some charisma, he's got um, uh, a lot of backers who put on a show at these events, and he's uh, most recently gone viral on a, um, uh, a video, I'm sure you're aware of, mm. where he confronted um, yeah. some racist ranting from a, a woman, and that video uh, was reposted around the world. Uh, at the beginning of this conversation, you weren't sure about his success, but as you're describing him to me, he sounds like it sh- he should be a shoe-in for this. Well, he's by far the, the best retail politician among the four. Uh, but, you know, this is, uh, I, I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but this is the NDP. Yeah. Despite the, um, the view that, you know, this, this 
Rubicon has been crossed and there's no more conscious of the party. This is a party that wants to form a government. There are still uh, a number of members of the NDP who look for um, uh, a lot more policy and a lot yeah. more uh, pie charts and graphs and numbers. And, uh, and what the party stands for. Yeah, and what the party stands for. Um, you know, there, there's a fear that uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh, you know, this is his first run federally. He's never had a seat in, in the House of Commons, that he's a, he's a bit of an interloper, that a guy like Charlie Angus, a veteran um, caucus member from uh, northern Ontario, uh, knows the roots of the party, works the roots hard. Maybe he's the guy to reinvigorate from the bottom up. Or um, Guy Caron, who's widely unknown before this race started, but has run a very solid policy-focused uh, campaign. Uh, maybe he's the best choice. Uh, he's also from Quebec, and the party is sliding right down the chute in Quebec, and that's causing a lot of concern. Or maybe Nikki Ashton, who uh, is a um, an MP from northern Manitoba, who is drawing on um, a much younger millennial crowd and is trying to bring into uh, her campaign and, and, and as her supporters the next generation of voters that the NDP will need. So, you know, there are choices out there. Jagmeet Singh is getting most of the attention, but uh, the other three candidates are solid candidates. Uh, is this what this party needs? And I mean by that Jagmeet Singh simply because the wave of politics currently is anti-establishment. They don't want, even if it's the NDP who, are, who, who certainly are uh, not typical politicians, there's still people that have been doing it there for an awfully long time. People get tired of that political wheel. We saw that with Brexit. We saw that with the election of Donald Trump. Is this the sort of thing people are looking for? Well, uh, look, a couple points there, Scott. I don't want to say it's a populist candidate by any means, but certainly somebody who at least gets people's attention. Well, and you know, let's face it, in, in politics, you've got to get noticed, and Jagmeet Singh gets noticed. Now, uh, you can also make the argument that... Uh, Politics these days, particularly leadership politics, is a, is a, a young man or a young woman's game. Uh, Chagney sings 38. Mm. The Conservatives um, uh, chose Andrew Scheer, who's 38. Uh, Justin Trudeau, when he runs for re-election in 2019, will all of a sudden be by far the oldest of mm. the three major party candidates. So you've got youth. You've got a guy who um, in Singh who, who um, knows the social media game. Uh, and here's the choice for the party. Do you want to uh, choose somebody uh, from the provincial legislature uh, who's got this style and this panache and, and you know, this charisma, as, as people in the party say, you can't teach charisma. Uh, put him in there, let him grow into the job, and take on Justin Trudeau uh, on Justin Trudeau's turf. Uh, you know, the, the bright turbans versus the bright socks. Hmm. Sounds a little shallow and a little superficial, but I mean, just take a look at what's going on in the political game right now. Well, I hate or be- do you want to go with somebody... Uh, who the party faithful thinks has a bit more gravitas and a little less flair. So, you know, that, that's probably where they're at. It just seems that there's that still that old stalwart NDP that if you have a nice suit, you're out. <laughs> they're just not looking for that. That's not okay. what they want. And well, is, it is Jagmeet Singh as much a hindrance as he is a help because he is drawing so much attention to himself as opposed to the party. Well, it's not just his suit, it's his multi-hued turban. Absolutely. Suit. Uh, I mean, he he is a guy that does not go unnoticed. Now, does that mean he's not bringing uh, baggage to the, uh, the to the table? Sure, he is. Um, first off, he he has gotten better over the um, length of the campaign, and he was the last one in. But there were undoubted concerns among um, 
some of the uh, old uh, old line party stalwarts who actually wanted to see him win, that he had to up his game. Uh, he has upped his game, but he is um, he's still going to find a learning curve moving up to the bigger federal stage if he's elected. Here's another problem. You know what? That uh, almost sounds like people at the uh, at the beginning of the Trudeau campaign. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you would hear from liberals that you know what. He's going to surround himself with smart people, and he's going to grow. And um, he certainly did during the campaign. Uh, you know, an assessment of his government is another story, but he certainly grew during that campaign. And uh, his opponents, including Tom Mulcair, uh, paid the price for uh, underestimating him. Uh, there are other problems with Jagmeet Singh, though. He doesn't have a seat. Mm. And this could become a very big problem, because, as you may recall, Jack Layton didn't have a seat when he was chosen in 2003. And Leighton became like the house guest in the foyer of the uh, House of Commons who hung on <laughs> many weeks too long. He wanted to stand at the mic and respond to everything. And uh, I was in the gallery then, and we were getting tired of going over and asking Jack questions. Uh, Singh, one presumes, would continue to um, uh, travel the country, but they'd have to put a, a, a parliamentary leader in place uh, for question period and uh, running caucus meetings and so on. So uh, that is a problem. And let's be honest. They all, with the exception of, well, including Guy Caron, because his profile is not that high, but they all have a problem in Quebec. And as Guy Caron yesterday said, uh, the path to electoral success goes through Quebec. There's only 4,000 NDP members in Quebec. Uh, and since the uh, heady days of the orange wave in 2011, there's been a steady erosion of support for the party there. So that, that's got to be a priority for them. And Singh uh, or anyone who is chosen by this party... Uh, has a major challenge in, in reinvigorating the party in Quebec. Uh, how divisive is the party in Quebec? Uh, some were commenting that because of Singh, and you talked about the colorful turbans and such, that that would be a hard sell. I mean, as much as we hate to all admit that, is that the case? Well, there's polling data that shows that. Um, um, and I talked uh, about that with your colleague Bill Kelly when it came out around July uh, mm-hmm. first about uh, attitudes uh, across the country to religious headgear. There's a Bill 62 in Quebec, as you know, would, uh, uh, is, 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 you know what, Scott, it's like the, the New Democrats are, are living internally the entire 2015 campaign again when the Niqab debate mm. wounded Tom Mulcair so bad in Quebec. So they now are all trying to say that they, they don't agree with the thrust of the legislation that tends, that would regulate what women wear in Quebec, but that it is the right of the Quebec National Assembly to decide how it wants to govern itself. So it is turning itself into a pretzel there. Uh, Pierre Nantel, a Quebec MP, this weekend in Hamilton, uh, came out and said uh, essentially that uh, uh, Singh, because of his uh, his turban and his kirpan, uh, would uh, have great difficulties in Quebec. Uh, he backpedaled a little bit. Singh handled it well. But uh, I, I think it's a reality that Singh would have a long uh, struggle uh, in a province that uh, um, looks uh, a bit more askance at the religious headgear, shall we say, than, than other parts of the country. Uh, let's talk about the other three candidates, starting with Charlie Angus. Is, is he the default position here? Is he the guy most likely to get this? You know, until a couple of weeks ago, I would have thought so. I'm not so sure that uh, Guy Caron from Quebec is... Uh, not necessarily, and he might be moving up into Angus territory. There might be a surprise in the way the first ballot shakes down. Um, Caron has won himself a number of uh, 
uh, high level endorsements going down the um, down the uh, home stretch here. Whether it was too late to build momentum or not, I'm not sure. Uh, Angus uh, is a long. Charlie Angus is uh, known uh, most for his work on Indigenous affairs. He's indefatigable and very, very uh, dedicated to that. But he's also uh, sort of, you know, the, the friend of the working guy, the, the mine workers and the steel workers. And um, he likes to get down and uh, roll up his sleeves with the with the common workers, which has always been a, a, a way to win NDP support. Uh, that's how he is uh, billing himself. And as I said, Nikki Ashton... Um, Nikki Ashton is, uh, continues to tell us she's trying to build a movement, and she is as f- farther to the left uh, than uh, anyone else in the race. Uh, there, there's a sense, I think, in some elements of the party that she would be willing to um, trample long-held party tenets in order to, to, to stay on the left, and I think her candidacy worries some uh, party forwards, but she is bringing in a younger crowd. So... Uh, you know, I'm not going to predict the order of the first ballot because I say there is no reliable polling. But um, if Jagmeet Singh cannot win on the first ballot, uh, then you have to look around and see who is going to win that second ballot. It's a ranked ballot. Who is the second choice? I would have thought it was Charlie Angus until recently, but you know, it might be Guy Caron. So there might be there might be a bit of a surprise coming. Um, and Caron is a um, uh, a very smart guy, an economist. Uh, with a very, very uh, hefty platform, but he is the antithesis of Jagmeet Singh when it comes to retail politics and uh, and charisma and, and being outgoing. So uh, th- there's quite a contrast sitting there for the party. Is Quebec the key here for the NDP, or was the orange wave just, uh, w- was that just luck? Well, no, it wasn't luck because Jack Layton, uh, I remember Layton telling me one time over lunch how hard and how many elections they worked in Quebec. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would he would speak to a group of four from the porch so it wasn't a protest vote no it it was something well that's how that that's ultimately how they they got it in 2011 they ran a separate quebec campaign that that basically told quebecers everybody else is the problem but we're different but the roots were were set uh, in there for such a a campaign to work because of uh, four elections of work for layton uh, Mulcair, uh was expected to protect it, and until that Nikab debate came up, he was protecting it. Yeah, that was tricky. Uh, yeah, but they uh, they uh, they've slipped in relevance uh, in, in Quebec. There's no doubt that Quebec is key because right now the, the party strength, based on his leadership, is is based in the lower mainland in BC uh, and around the Toronto area, and that's not enough to cobble together anything close to a government. What's the difference, Tim, between an old NDPer and a young? How much difference is there? Will the young sway this vote? Well, um, what does a young NDPer look like? A young NDP, uh, well, in uh, Nikki Ashton's video yesterday, they all wore glasses. We all noted that. They, uh, <laughs> look, young uh, NDP voters are worried about uh, precarious work. They're worried about income inequality. Uh, they are uh, very much involved in uh, LGBT uh, rights. Um, they, uh, but they very much become a stereotype of themselves. That's why we're, you know, saying the things that we're saying. I mean, w- at what time do they actually get out of that funk and actually put something on the table that people are going to take note of? Well, I don't know if it's a funk, to be honest with you, Scott. The, the argument there in the Ashton campaign, and one that should be listened to, is that there, it, you know, we always keep talking about uh, apathy among young voters. She's actually mobilized 
uh, a young core of supporters that if, if they stay and grow, uh, this will be the dominant uh, voting block in uh, elections going forward. Uh, they'd be very close to it now. You asked about the older, long-term, long-time New Democrats. Uh, I don't want to generalize here, but I do remember talking to Mulcair during the 2012 uh, campaign where he would go out to Manitoba or Saskatchewan, you know, on the prairies, and uh, people had uh, voted uh, NDP all their lives. They thought it was a kind of a sellout that this party should be going for power. Uh, power corrupts. What are we gonna, uh, what's going to happen to us when we get power? Um, th- this younger voting cohort that is, is flocking to, uh, to Nikki Ashton, um, it, it, it's impatient, perhaps, um, to their detriment, but they don't want to be a conscience of anything. They want change, and they want they want they want power. So, uh, will they grow out of it? Maybe not if they get to see some fruits of their uh, enthusiasm. Uh, is socialism attractive to the younger generation now more so than capitalism? Uh, sure. The well, the Ashton crowd were all a bunch of kids yesterday wearing uh, people, not profits. Um, strange that they all met in the uh, Starbucks across the street from the convention center first, but uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure that's where I would have You know, it. and this is unfair of me to say, but you're going to hear my, my editorial here. I think it's odd to stand there on a, a, in a platform, in a society, in a system that was built on capitalism and preach socialism. I don't know. I, I just, you know, it's like uh, it's just not from the right place, I think. And, and there was a time when I was growing up uh, that young people wanted to grab the bull by the horns and get what they can, and now it's like they're looking for the grandfather's pension that doesn't exist no it doesn't but you know uh i'll tell you when i was their age uh now i'm gonna sound old but i'm gonna tell you i didn't realize how lucky i was yeah that i could go to a job that would uh offer me security and a pension yep uh for year years on end um that generation doesn't have that yeah and And it's uh, easy to pee on them for that you know it's easy to it's easy to characterize a millennial well, yeah, and well, yeah, sure, because they're, they're staying in mom's basement. Well, look at what it would cost to buy a house here in Toronto. I yeah. mean, uh, they may not be in, in mom's basement by by choice, but look what's happened to the housing market. And that's the other thing that they want is they want uh, more socialized housing. They want housing reform so that they can actually uh, move out of mom's basement and and, and get a house. Uh, do you slowly see? The other traditional parties listening to this, are they aware that there's this this feeling of disenfranchisement within young people? Yeah, you, you remember the, uh, well, there's been a lot of lip service to it. I, I, Bernie Sanders, uh, just look south of the border, Bernie Sanders proved that there is a huge um, uh, place for a campaign built on uh, eliminating income inequality and so on. I don't see, you know, every every NDP candidate in this race is going to tell you some of the same things. They, they're going to end uh, income inequality. They're going to stop pipelines. Um, you know, they're also trying to lead a third party, and I hate to sound cynical, but when the rubber hits the road and you're governing, um, it's a little more difficult to make uh, blanket pledges like that. Justin Trudeau's finding that out because he's being stymied by some pledges he made when he was the leader of the third party. Um, but, uh, you, you hear a lot of talk about, uh, ending income inequality, uh, and there are actually were numbers, census numbers out last week shows there's been a little progress made, but, um, no, I don't see that. 
you know, honestly, I don't see that coming from the federal government of Justin Trudeau, no. The NDP I mean, and the road back to relevance, that is the latest column by Tim Harder, uh, Tim Harper. Rather, You can read it in your Toronto Star. Tim Harper, the NDP and the road back to relevance, talking about, of course, the NDP leadership candidates and the journey they are on for votes. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I enjoyed the talk, Scott. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've been talking about this for an awful long time. We've certainly seen, uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, various stages of retailer. You had your mom and pop sort of thing on Main Street. Uh, Then it kind of went into the strip mall where there was uh, a whole pile of stores together, an outdoor strip mall, and you'd park your car and walk from one to the other. Uh, Then, of course, it became the giant uh, conglomerate indoor mall where everything was, you know, turned inward and faced inward and from the street it looked like just a giant concrete bunker and then to uh the 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 silliest most embarrassing and i think selfish uh part of retailer uh retail uh reared its ugly head the big box stores i am sorry i have absolutely nothing good to say about these i think they serve no purpose i think they evolved out of the uh you know, uh, outlet store kind of thing in the United States. Come on, give me a break. There's an outlet store in every neighborhood. Come on. Uh, and these things to me just um, just uh, display everything wrong about retail. Big, fat, and lazy. Uh, and, you know, here we are in times of economy, times of uh, environment and you, why would you want to park your car at one end of a giant lot, go in one store, do your business, and then because you've got packages or it's just too far to walk, you get back in your car and drive to the big box store that's two or three box stores down from where you are at the other end of the parking lot. This is as asinine as the LCBO and the beer store having two giant buildings at the other end of a shopping center, as opposed to one together that we can all use. You know, so you have to drive to one and then get back in the car and drive another 30 seconds to the other one because you can't walk back and forth with all, with your merchandise. I mean, it's, it doesn't make sense. So we go from there. Now we're swinging back again. And mom and pop stuff is seeming to show up again. Or, better yet, I don't know if it's better yet, more interestingly, uh, organized retail that appears to be mom and pop. So instead of all of the locations the same, they're all a little different if you have a restaurant sort of idea. Uh, and it all and research out says the big, the big malls are doing just fine, thank you, because... They were sort of the most efficient way to do it. You park your car once, you go in, you wander around, make it as easy as you can, and you get the hell out. Is that the future? Is the mom and pop thing the future? How, do, how does big retail and these giant malls and even more, I think, irrelevant big box stores stay in business? Has this nothing to do with the retail model and all to do with internet shopping, uh, e-sales? Is this just internet sales that's changing the face of retailers. To talk more about all of this, Craig Patterson is with us, Director of Applied Research, School of Retailing, Alberta School of Business, University of Alberta, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Craig. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. 
Hello, thank you for having me. Is the big mall, not the box store, but the, the giant malls that we see in every city, major city, are they doing well? Are they going the way of the dodo bird? Oh, goodness. Um, the best malls are just getting better, and they're actually also increasing their uh, sales per square foot, uh, which is quite remarkable. Uh, I know that uh, we've heard a lot uh, in the news about the retail apocalypse, in quotation marks, but uh, I would say that's certainly not the case, at least not amongst top stores and top retailers. Why is this happening? Why are we getting a, di- a different read of this? Uh, it really depends on uh, what categories we're looking at uh, with retail. I know that some retailers are certainly struggling, uh, certainly those that haven't uh, you know, kept up with uh, consumer demand in the times. There's also a lot more competition, but uh, certainly you, know, you look at the performance of a retailer like Lululemon, uh, Canada Goose Store at Yorkdale in Toronto, uh, Aritzia stores. I mean, some of these stores are just hitting it out of the park. Uh, their sales have never been higher. So uh, it, it certainly isn't that consumers are, are not shopping. Uh, they're just shopping in a different way. And, you know, it seemed that if you were in a giant mall that there was one, two, or even three of these major giant anchor tenants that would, you know, department stores, that they would anchor them around. And it's those that are having the difficulty as well as they try to figure out what their niche is. Department stores are interesting. I mean, I think that there's a future in department stores if they're, you know, a compelling environment that has, uh, you know, a lot of activity, things changing, a place that people want to go. If you go to some European and Asian cities, they've got some really great department stores, but there aren't, you know, a hundred of them. Uh, They're a little more, you know, unique and niche and, uh, you know, special. I mean, Harrods in London might be the best example in the world of someone that's famous, but you know, we've got uh, over 90 Hudson's Bay stores in Canada. We've got many Sears stores. There's just too many, and they're not uh, as interesting as they could be. Uh, is that the problem, saturation? It seemed that, you know, in the 80s when we started building these giant malls, every city, and even mid-sized city, had to have one. I think it is uh, saturation. I also think that uh, retail models have changed. Uh, certainly for department stores, they were... Uh, they constituted a, a very significant portion of retail sales in Canada at one time, uh, and, you know, and they don't anymore. Uh, consumers are shopping at smaller stores. They've got a wider variety of uh, stores. They've got off-price stores. It's just it's a different time right now for retail. So, uh, you know, where the department store was everything before, you know, it's now just one type of retailer amongst many other types. Uh, as I mentioned in the preamble, it, it's certain retail has taken uh, the form of, of, of many models uh, over the years. Is this about finding the, raw, the right model for today's customer, or is it competing with online sales? Is that the real underlying uh, threat here? I think it's not so much online sales. Um, we're figuring that by the end of 2017, about 8% of uh, Canadian retail sales will be done online, which means that still 92% are being done in stores. Let so. me in, let me interrupt you there, Craig, because you hear so much every Christmas about how much people are buying online. I honestly thought that number would be higher than what it is. Yeah, no, that's um, I work with Retail Council of Canada as well, and that's our estimate for the uh, end of this year is that it would be about 8%. Uh, we had it at about 6 to 7% for this year. So it, it is, I think it's less than people expect. I mean, you know, in the United States, it is higher. It's probably about 10%, but certainly in Canada, we haven't reached that level yet. Uh, but even so, at 10%, as you mentioned, that's still 90% that are going into a retail store. Uh, why are they doing that if it's so much easier for us just to do it online? I think it depends on the product and it depends on the person. Uh, you know, we've all grown up going to stores, uh, you know, physical stores, that is. And, 
some people are still seeking that experience. I know that, uh, you know, in a place like Toronto, people say, what should we do today? Let's go to, you know, the Toronto Eaton Centre and, you know, go shopping, go to a restaurant, hang out and have a day. Uh, these are, you know, people, it, I mean, it's hard to have a social experience when you're sitting on your computer or you're on your mobile phone. Mm. Uh, I think that people are still human and want to get out and do something. And that's why the top malls that are investing into their properties and making them, you know, look great. Uh, they're the ones that are doing well. And, you know, in Hamilton, the CF Lime Ridge, I think, you know, would be considered mm-hmm. the top center there. And, uh, you know, it's got a great list of or great uh, selection of retailers. Uh, so are they are malls real, realizing they have to become more of destination uh, situations where it's not just about uh, going in and seeing the same store that your grandparents saw? Like, as you mentioned, it's a day there. I think so. Um, people seem to be looking more for experiences now than I think they were in the past. So, you know, we're seeing more consumer spending in the area of restaurants and travel and uh, you know, massages, you know, people are going in and, and enjoying things. They're not just going out and, you know, consuming and spending, you know, percentage of their income on, on that. So uh, I think that shopping centers and, you know, smart retailers are saying, you know, the consumer wants something. We have to give them an experience. We can't just, you know, try to sell them a product on a shelf. We need to, to make it interesting. And, and so that's why, you know, we've got some shopping centers in Canada, which are doing some really interesting things. Some even have amusement parks and that might sound silly, but, uh, I think it would work. You know, the rec room is coming in. Uh, it's an adult amusement park in terms of it's, you know, it serves alcohol and it's it's not meant for little kids to mm-hmm. run around in generally. But, uh, you know, these are being added to shopping centers and it's because, uh, you know, people are going and spending a day. They're looking to have that town center experience almost is what you might call it. Uh, shopping centers in many communities have actually replaced what the downtown core was, uh, you know, a generation ago. Uh, now with the, and you bring up a valid point there because now slowly downtown cores are starting to come back. Can we blend in cities where the downtown core is good and the mall also does good? One does, ha- does one have to replace the other? Oh, I mean, I would like to see both work. I'm, I'm a big downtown, uh, promoter personally for cities. I think that uh, having an urban core is important to you know, have a heart in the city um, I would hope that there's room for both. Uh, in some cities, definitely there is. Uh, I think that Toronto manages to uh, maintain, you know, a very, very healthy downtown core, uh, probably the healthiest in Canada for retail. Uh, you know, Vancouver is pretty close. Uh, and it also has Yorkdale Shopping Centre, as well as uh, Square One and Sherway Gardens, which are also, e- you know, equally uh, good suburban malls. So, yeah, I think that there is room for both. But if you look at, you know, a lot of American cities right now, it really seems like there's a hollowing out of the core at the expense of, uh, or, you know, the, the core it is hollowed out at the expense of shopping centers in the suburbs. Mm. So I think it really depends on the community. But uh, I, I think that malls have certainly had a profound impact on, on cities generally, as have cars and uh uh, I don't know if it's for the better. I would say probably not. Well, remember when West Edmonton Mall opened up, uh, you know, back in the 80s, and this was the, the rink, amusement park, blah, 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 blah. And and that sort of was, uh, uh, I guess, the pinnacle of the shopping mall, but then almost became a caricature of itself. What's the difference between the ideas behind the original West Edmonton Mall and those new experiences that you are talking about in today's mall? What's different? What's the same? Well, I think that West Edmonton Mall, maybe arguably it has more entertainment than it needs. Uh, I mean, what it really is is an entertainment resort that also happens to have shopping. Uh, I think that what we're seeing is certain mall landlords looking at their shopping environment and looking to add entertainment components. So 
Uh, I know it's more semantics, but I think that it's the scale of the entertainment generally we're going to see in shopping malls that's going to be less. You know, at CF Lime Ridge or at Yorkdale, uh, you're not going to see three-quarters of the real estate dedicated to a uh, amusement park. You know, I don't yeah. think that's going to happen. But uh, West Edmonton Mall, you know, uh, is actually a highly productive shopping center. Uh, the retailers do quite well, many of them. And some of them, uh, like Lululemon, I mean, that's their top store in the world, I believe. Uh, Victoria's Secret's second highest-selling store in North America is at West Edmonton Mall. So mm. having entertainment in a mall, I mean, it's not a shabby mall that isn't doing well because it's just an entertainment center. People are actually also shopping in the mall. So I call it a success. Uh, what about big box stores? You heard me babble about these. I'm not a fan of them. Um, is there a purpose for them? How have they lasted this long? What's the attraction? Why are these you know, be- Why are these a better shopping experience than a mom and pop or a mall or a strip mall? It's funny. I, I heard you talking about it, and I thought I was listening to myself. I <laughs> I, I, I agree with everything. I, I you just said. I honestly think I honestly think it was a step backwards. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, the anti-downtown. You're driving from store to store. Uh, it makes no sense, in my opinion, especially in a country like Canada that's so cold, uh, to have to get out of your vehicle, get yeah. back in and drive to another store. I mean, the reason that these are successful is they've, uh, you know, uh, put you know put together a bunch of different retailers, uh, created, uh, you know, a shopping experience. Uh, the rents uh, are less in these centres generally for the retailers, and the maintenance costs are less. They don't have a interior corridor to heat and to uh, air mm-hmm. condition and whatnot. So uh, it is cheaper for retailers uh, to, you know, be in these power centers. But I, I just hope that they're a temporary phenomenon. I know that they've been a big thing for about 20 years now, but the way that they use land is incredibly inefficient. Uh, the overall experience is, is not great. Uh, I have shopped at these, and speaking from first-hand experience, I recently was living in Alberta, and um, I was just, uh, you know, I don't like to drive a car a whole lot, and I was just flabbergasted at how these things are set up. And I wanted to go from a Walmart to a GNC store, and I thought, oh, I'll just walk it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a lack of sidewalks; it felt unsafe, and I just thought, oh my god, this is just what a what a terrible experience. And it, the landscaping was actually not that bad, but it didn't have sidewalks in parts where you would want to walk from one place to the other. And Anyways, I just uh, I decided that I, I'm not a fan of big, big box retail, but it's in almost every region in Canada now. Uh, and I guess, like you said, it's a specialized thing. There's certain products that go that that, that work well there. Um, is this is this a ripoff of the outlet mall kind of mentality in the United States? It, you know, it seems like you know it's almost like Ontario tried to stop people from going to Buffalo to those malls, so we just built a bunch here that look nicer. Yeah, and we also have outlet malls. We have those American-style outlet malls, and I would consider them to be even in a different category because they're carrying, uh, those outlet malls are carrying, you know, discounted product. A lot of it really is actually made for the outlet. It's not product that was in the main stores. It was it was made for the outlet. But, um, you know, I think with the big box centers that we're seeing, it's very much, you know, the Walmarts, the Costcos, they're uh, Winners, Marshalls, they're, you know, cheaper stores. But the outlet stores are also, or the outlet malls, I should say, are positioning themselves as discount outlet malls with a lot of smaller retailers and some larger ones. So there's a, there's a crossover, but I would still also see them as being different. And we've got them both in Canada now. Uh, the issue with large department stores, we're seeing Sears, you know, die a slow death. Uh, the Bay has done the opposite. They've taken off. But a lot of these stores have uh, have had to restructure. Target came in and left uh, just as fast. 
Uh, how much uh, does do those stores depend on the mall survival? Are malls getting away from those? And like a lot of the big malls that uh, had large that had large stores like this, when they when they rented the space out, they divided it up as opposed to one big retailer. Uh, are, is that still strong? How are we going to see that uh, shake down in the next ten years? Uh, I think if we look at what's happened with some of Target's former spaces, you know, making the assumption that department stores, some department stores were closed, I think that's actually a strong assumption. Um, we're seeing two things. In some instances, well, at least two things, probably more, but we are seeing some of the department store boxes being subdivided, so or demised, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they're splitting it up into smaller retailers. Uh, you know, and, and trying to fill it there and doing some renovations and whatnot. Uh, the other thing we're seeing is these uh, boxes actually just being demolished and that, you know, some landlords are looking at their space and saying, well, we can redevelop this. And one of the more interesting trends, I think, is mall landlords are adding housing to their properties. In terms really? Of, uh, yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. We're going to see this phenomenon play out uh, in Toronto, I'd say, between now and 2020 and a bit beyond. Uh, and in Vancouver, it's where land prices are quite high. If you look at the zoning of many shopping centers, they're zoned as, they're zoned as multi-use uh, uh, you know, properties. Mm-hmm. And landlords are saying, well, we can actually build in, uh, you know, build in a group of shoppers that can come downstairs and shop in our mall. So, uh, you know, it's certainly something we've seen in the United States. It's happening in Vancouver right now. And in Toronto, even, again, to use Yorkdale as an example, there's a proposal to put, uh, I think, a couple of thousand housing units on the north end towards the 401 on the actual Yorkdale site. Wow. Uh, times are changing, that's for sure. Uh, Craig Patterson has been with us, Director of Applied Research, School of Retailing, Alberta School of Business, University of Alberta. Craig, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We uh, talk about space uh, as much as we can on this show. I always find this sort of stuff fascinating. And uh, whether it's uh, launching rockets that return back to the launch pad or space stations or now the next uh, great frontier, which, of course, is Mars. Lots of chatter about uh, this trip. Uh, some people, well, I guess it is sort of a space race as to uh, who's going to get there or, or you know, what private company is going to be funding all of this or, or certainly providing uh uh, the technology and engineering to get us up there. Uh, Mars researchers emerge from isolation. It's not just getting there. It's how are you going to live once you get there? Because it's not like you can just jump on a rocket and come on home. It doesn't really work that way. Uh, they've uh, Mars researchers have emerged from isolation after being cooped up in a Mars-like habitat. This is the only, I feel sorry for them up until this point, Hawaii. All right. Uh, Part of a study uh, to look into the psychological impacts of a long-term space mission. You think about what's going on with the space station and how how long some of those astronauts have been up there. Uh, you got to think they're going to be suffering uh, the same sort of thing, just to a greater de- uh, degree. To talk more about all of this, Paul Delaney is with us, professor of astronomy, York University. He is on the line with us now. Paul, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join us. What can you tell us about this experiment? G'day, Scott. Well, it's, it's one in a continuing series of experiments. As you've alluded to, we are trying to figure out how to coop up six people in a relatively small environment, small volume, for very long periods of time. We've done this several times with NASA and a couple of private funded groups, but the bottom line to it is we're still trying to figure out the the technique to select the six best compatible people who literally will not get to Mars and go, okay, get out of my sight, go go to the other side of the planet. (laughs) 
let alone the notion of, of coming back. So it, it's the psychology that we're trying to figure out more than anything else at the moment. I guess you don't want to get all the ways to, I guess you don't want to get all the way to Mars before you figure out, I really don't like this guy next to me. No, it's not a good thing. It's not great for teamwork, compatibility, getting the job done, and so on. And as I say, it's arguably the bigger challenge. A lot of the, the technological challenges, we are really within a hair of overcoming. But get the right combination of people to work together. That's still the biggest concern that NASA has. You know, again, you bring up a very valid point because most people think about the technology. Can we get there? How long it takes to get there? Can we keep people safe there? All of that sort of stuff. You never think about, okay, now it's done. We're all in a room. What happens next? Uh, How much work do they put into this? What sort of testing would they do? Well, we've been putting a lot of work into it. In fact, all the way back into the 60s, these types of isolation and analog missions have been running now for the better part of 50 years in a lot more earnestness, if I can use that term, uh, in the last five to 10 years. Uh, So there is a phenomenal amount of effort. Uh, Grab six people, put them into a two-bedroom, you know, townhouse home and say, stay that way for nine months. Uh, yeah, you can be productive, and in this modern technological age, you can you know, give them a lot of distractions. You can uh, keep them in communication with home and so on and so forth. But keeping their really sharp edge, that's the big challenge. So you know, there is, as I say, a lot of effort that's being put into it by NASA, by the Russian Space Federation, by the European Space Agency, and various Mars sympathetic groups all around the planet. So a lot of effort is going into it. I'm guessing that there would have to be a lot of structure in the day just to survive it. Yes, that's true. But as we found out with Skylab all the way back in the 70s, too much structure is bad news. Uh, Literally, the, the astronauts aboard the Skylab space station sort of went on strike because mission control had them choreographed seven days a week. So you've got to find the right balance. That's why you often hear aboard the ISS, the astronauts have got a day off or they've got you know, a, a long shift, but then they're, you know, turn on everything off and, and they can go do what they want for a while. Finding that balance, we figured that out early in the 1970s. So yes, you've got to have a lot of structure. You've got to have a lot of goals. You've got to know what the astronauts' individual tasks are so that they can really retain motivation. But you've got to, just like you and me, have the weekends off or, or some equivalent type of structured vacation time, downtime, so that they keep their edge. What, what would you do? Because I, I would just assume when I said my point on structure that, um, you know, it's not so much just about doing the work. It's just about it would keep your mind busy. How would they detune? What do you do when you're in a situation like that? What do you do for leisure? How do you decompress? Well, yeah, I, I guess to some extent, everybody is individual. Think of Chris Hatfield. You know, he went off and sung in the cupola aboard yeah. the International Space Station. So you, you've got to let the individuals do their things, so to speak, because obviously that will be the most efficient and most effective way for them to decompress. And this goes back to the psychological profiling. You want to find people who are not just good at their job, uh, be able to interact with others effectively, but to be able to, if you will, go off and find their way, their own way to recharge. Yeah, some people might do that over a game of chess. Other people might do that over uh, you know, a computer game. I mean, you know, the one thing you can't build into these things is a basketball court or, or things along those lines. So, I mean, yeah. you know, the physical activity is going to be pretty much restricted to treadmills and, and so on. So this is all part and parcel of the 
correct psychological profile for the individuals that they will every bit as effectively decompress on their own time as well as engage people. And one of the things that this most recent mission has done, the one that has just sort of popped out on Mauna Loa in, in Hawaii, is that you, know, you are going to have challenges within the group. They are going to get annoyed with each other. Yeah. They are going to have arguments. That's just human nature. As I said, six people in a really confined place for eight months but the trick is to have, again, the psychological profile in place that says these people will be able to, if you will, blow up with each other and really have it out. And the mm -hmm. next day, they're back working effectively together. They can go up and they can come down. They can recover from it. Would they all have, and obviously nobody's the same, but would they all have similar personality traits or would it be better to have different ones? Well, I can, here I can only go by what I'm reading. The, the, the area of psychology is far from my field of astronomy and space science. But from what I'm reading, uh, it appears that they are all very individual, that they are different uh, in, in terms of their perspective. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, opposites attract, so as to speak, maybe mm -hmm. the term that you and I could appreciate. Uh, you, you don't want them to be all the same. It appears that they really are very much their own individuals. And uh, the, the correct grouping, shall we say, has become uh, one of the key factors in trying to figure out uh, you know, how to set up the next mission of eight months. Okay, they learn from this one. This set of characteristics seem to work well. Let's try and instill that. that, that that's why we have so many of them. It, 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 you know, human nature is complex. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't, get, you don't get all your answers from just one group of, of six people. Are we... May, you may recall that uh, we've had some real serious incidents. There was a, a group that was Mars 500 were cooped up for 500 days. They didn't make it to the end because, you know, they just almost were at each other's throats. Mm. So what's the difference with this, Paul, and, and the space station? Because, I mean, they're up at the space station for months and months and months uh, at a time. There's even been longer. What's the difference there? Well, a couple of key differences, you, if, if you think about it, the crews can go up for four, five, or six months, but about halfway through that, the group of six changes. They've got the shifts staggered so that you've got uh, a group on for six months. Three months into that, right. they bring another crew up. So the same group of people is changing on a timescale of about three months. Right. Uh, and, of course, there, the space station as silly as it might sound, is much bigger yeah. than what we're proposing to go to Mars with. Uh, it's about a, a five-bedroom house or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. uh, six people in a five-bedroom house, they're changing all the time, every three months or better. Uh, so I think, and there's also a lot more diversion. You know, you bring up the Dragon space capture, you bring up a progress. So there's a lot more variety that is engaged. Uh, they do go on spacewalks, which I'm sure is a highlight for many of them. Uh, so, you know, it, it is a different environment. They're learning from it, particularly now the biological aspects. Uh, but I'm not sure that it's telling you a great deal about the psychology that is needed for a much longer mission. So uh, couldn't they just take a few people and shoot them up to the space station and just keep them in one wing for a while? <laughs> well, I guess Although that might that, that might create a lot of tension between people on both sides of that door. Yeah, I haven't heard that that's a realistic option, Scott. Uh, Is there alcohol in space, Paul? Maybe we should ask that question first. <laughs> I believe the answer is unofficially yes. <laughs> Is there really? I believe so. 
So if they if they wanted to have a, a glass of beer or wine, they could do so up there. I, I think it's it's very well orchestrated. I mean, we're not talking about binging here by no. any stretch of the imagination. No. But, uh, you know, it's part of human nature, and I care to bet that on the way to Mars, there'll be a nice bottle of whiskey in the corner and so on and so forth. <laughs> well, you know, considering you're strapping, strapping yourself to a rocket, I think that's warranted. There's nothing wrong with that. That's exactly right. Now, remember, we have had two astronauts aboard the International Space Station who were on board for a year. Uh, and that was primarily for biology. That was really an analog of going to Mars uh, because, you know, it's a nine-month trip, as you indicated at the beginning. You know, it's a nine-month trip one way. And when you get there, you just can't turn around and come home again. But that nine months is what the two astronauts aboard ISS for the year-long mission were really probing, really investigating. Again, the, the psychology wasn't there as much because the crew around them was changing. But the biology to keep them in that weightless environment for 12 months very much the analog to the Mars mission. All right, so tell us a little bit more about this uh, this experiment. Uh, nine months, they're uh, they're in Hawaii at an, at an active volcano of all places. Uh, is this an accurate simulation? What exactly would their what would their surroundings be like? Well, in fact, because it was at Mauna Loa, up at a, at a high altitude, looking out the window, and they do have windows in in these um, uh, facilities very much resembled the, the, the landscape of Mars. And apparently that's really important. You know, if, if you're doing this type of isolation and you look out the window and you see the grass growing and, and you see, you know, the seas rolling in and out and so on and so forth. <laughs> somebody, wrong... somebody out there rollerblading. No, it yeah. just doesn't have the same approach, does it? <laughs> that's right. So on top of Mauna Loa, it really does resemble the landscape of Mars. I, I've been up on the nearby volcano Mauna Kea, uh, where there's a lot of astronomical facilities. I kid you not, the, the landscape up there is very reminiscent of Mars. So that's important point number one. Number two, when they leave the habitat, which is what they did periodically to go on EVAs, to go and sort of you know do uh, mock geological runs and to walk around the surface in full spacesuit environment, again, you, you, you lay the table so that it really feels like you're on Mars. When they're inside the habitat, they were growing food. In fact, that was one of the highlights when they actually cultivated the tomatoes and the cabbages and so on and so forth. So they're, they're showing that they can be somewhat self-sustaining. And, of course, they did all the other science experiments, which in this particular instance were not so important, but atmospheric sampling, weather monitoring. Uh, you know, they had a few uh, issues that arose. They had to make the facility self-sufficient. And if something broke, they had to fix it. They didn't run down to the local store. It was all, you know, would they have would, what happened? Would they have any interaction with anybody other than a, a radio? And I understand that was like a twenty-minute delay to simulate Mars. So there'd be nobody, uh, you know, outside looking in or any of that. They are isolated. They are isolated. As I say, you're building the psychology. Even that twenty-minute delay that you mentioned, you know, it, it's meant to really give them the sense that you can't just say hi and carry on a conversation as you would here on Earth. There really is this remoteness that you've got to come to grips with. Would they have uh, had contact with their family, Paul? Oh, absolutely. But, but only only by, well, and not just radio, of course, you know, it, it's now a full two-way right, um, right. Uh, Skype, uh, yeah. FaceTime-type interaction, which is one of the really nice things that a lot of science fiction authors from the last century hadn't figured out. Hmm. You know, when you go to Mars you really still have this strong connection now via the internet yeah. uh, back to Earth. So that's a big, big plus in terms of helping them solve problems, but to keep the psychological balance. No better way to connect, you know, to ground you than with your family. 
So they were allowed to leave uh, this unit, this capsule, and go out in spacesuits. That's right, EVAs. They, they really did go out and do that. I'm not sure how many uh, they did it, how, how often they did it, but uh, you know, my bet is that each of the pairs, they went out in pairs, uh, had to do it probably something like once every two or three weeks, if for no other reason than just to get them out of the house, so right. to speak, uh, and at least feel like you've got a much bigger space around you. And that, that's what will happen on Mars. So, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable analog. So will they, once we eventually get there, the technology exists in a suit for them to go out and spacewalk on Mars? Absolutely. I mean, you know, that, that's the, it's the same basic type of spacesuit that you use when you're exiting the ISS. There's not mm-hmm. a whole lot of difference. Uh, the, the biggest problem, of course, is the radiation environment. Mars does not have the protective envelope we do here. It does not have a magnetic uh, field, a magnetosphere, that will protect them from the harsh radiation from the sun. There's no atmosphere to soak up the UV radiation and so on. Uh, as a consequence of that, your excursions onto the surface in an unexposed manner, and uh, unexposed I'm meaning you know, just the spacesuit, uh, will be limited. That's one of the biggest challenges. We need to create materials and fabrics that are more radiation resistant for our astronauts. Uh, when they do get to Mars, will going out be a part of the regular routine? So just like spacewalks, just to get them out of the house, they'll do this. I'm sure that is the case. Most of the scenarios that I've read really do call for that type of activity. Uh, some of it, of course, is just you know, real science. Go out and pick up some extra rocks, go out and sweep off the solar panels and so on and so forth. Uh, so there will be all manner of reasons to be going outside, but I'm sure one of them is, as we say, get them out of the house. Uh, I was reading also that they went through certain exercises and played certain games to measure their compatibility or compatibility and their stress levels, uh, and, and they actually monitored their moods quite closely. Well, it all comes back to what we were saying. You know, the psychological profile. Uh, I mean, you know, business and pleasure both play into your psychological profile. Uh, and so, yeah, these these uh, men and women were really um, yeah, monitored to the nth degree. They were uh, you know, carrying sensors with them to measure every aspect of their... That's amazing. Their so they can't even fib about this if they're having a feeling <laughs> that's even being analyzed. <laughs> you go into these things with your eyes open. I mean, uh, you, the, the, these are volunteers. They know what they're getting into, but they have a very passionate view that this is going to help us select the right crew to go to Mars. So, I mean, uh, they've really done this for all the right reasons. And so, yeah, no fibbing, no secrets. Uh, so is it safe to say that some of the members that participated in this, and I guess there's been other ones that have been ongoing, this one's in the news uh, today, uh, the crew that eventually does go will come from one of these groups, the people that have done this before? Oh, I don't think that's that's a given no? at all. No, no. Uh, I mean, not everybody who goes on these analog missions are, shall I say, fully astronaut trained. Right. Uh, they are as much guinea pigs, if I can use right. that term politely, as anything else. So you know, you're selecting a wide array of differing uh, psychological characteristics from individuals and then putting them in these circumstances. Some of them certainly do have astronaut training, but not all of them. So, no, I, I think these test missions, these analog missions that we are creating are to determine the right process by which we will select 
from an astronaut team, and it will be, I would care to bet, an international team. I think the ISS is the right model in this regard. The, uh, the eventual six, four, five or six astronauts that make that first trip to Mars I think will be of a fully international nature, and it will be these missions that have determined the characteristics from the various uh, astronaut teams, you know, the Russians, the yeah. Europeans, probably I'd like even the Chinese, to be perfectly honest, but there's still a lot of tension in that department. Uh, will there be six going? Do we know that? That decision hasn't been made. Certainly the vehicles that are on the drawing board at the moment could carry up to six, not that there's a, a definitive Mars profile uh, vehicle that has been defined, but Dragon, Red Dragon from uh, SpaceX, for example, they talk about four for that. But NASA has uh, openly suggested as many as six. But no, no decision has been made. That, so that really is a hardware issue still. One more question, and we only got a, a few 30 seconds or so left. What will this first mission look like? Let's assume it's six people going up. It's nine months to get there. How long are they there? What happens then? Well, they're going to be there for at least a year. Uh, that's the turnaround. Uh, Celestial Mechanics demands a nine-month trip, hang out for a year, and if you want to come straight back, the straight back is after being on the surface of Mars for a year and nine months back. So it makes it a, a two-and-a-half-year mission, all told. That is the likely scenario if NASA is involved. How do you get... There's no gas station on Mars. How do you get something up there, then bring it back? You take your fuel with you, literally. Uh, you, know, you leave the mothership in orbit. You go down with the equivalent of a lunar module. Do your stuff down there. We've sent stuff in advance to the surface to that location. We can land with pinpoint accuracy these days. So you send stuff in advance, and then the crew goes to that infrastructure and assembles it. Wow, that is fascinating. Uh, Paul Delaney has been with us, professor of astronomy, York University. Uh, Mars researchers emerged from isolation after being cooped up in a Mars-like habitat uh, for nine months. Paul, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.